Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing this song for the dreaming of the world That we may dream as one With every voice, with every song We will move this world along There are so many ways to improve and heal the world And today's guests, Nicholas Holton and Eva Hagenhofer, are doing it through their work with service learning, specifically rural service learning, which brings together students from higher education with people and organizations outside of urban areas for the common good. The terrain is different than what is experienced in parallel programs in the city, and there are important lessons to be learned on both sides from the collaboration. Nick is one of the three co-editors, and Eva, a contributor to a newly released book, The Landscape of Rural Service Learning. So Eva Hagenhofer and Nicholas Holton join us now by Skype for Spirit in Action. Nick, thank you so much for joining me for Spirit in Action. Hello. And Eva, I'm so pleased to have you back for this second time now on Spirit in Action. Well, thank you very much for your interest. This came out of a discussion that we had, Eva, after I had interviewed you about the David McClyman's Art for Peace Memorial Scholarship. Folks, you can look that up on the org website. There was a whole event that was fundraising for that. Does that continue, by the way, Eva? Yes. Well, we were very successful. We raised a couple thousand dollars, and now we're trying to figure out exactly what to do with it. So it's continuing, but it may end up funding a posthumous publishing project. David created an anti-war alphabet, so we're looking to possibly publish a book of that alphabet. And Nick, this is the first time I'm meeting you, although I understand that we both have a Santa Claus persona that's part of who we are, (laughs) so I'm very pleased to know another Santa Claus. You've been working for quite a few years in upstate Michigan, not what we call the Upper Peninsula, the UP, but upstate. How long did you work there, and you were Dean Emeritus there at Kirkland College? I actually taught math for a long time. I started doing service learning work in the mid-90s when I first started teaching there full-time. And so I was really, I kind of started the program at the college, at the small rural community college, Kirtland Community College, and we were able to grow that into quite the program. It was really exciting to watch the transformation on the community and on the students. The last couple of years I was there before my retirement, I was Associate Dean of General Studies, yes. How do you go from math, by the way, to service learning? That didn't seem intuitive. I think mostly the sociology or that kind of course is something that more naturally branches into service learning. I would like to say it was very noble, but it was very mercenary, actually. When I moved to the community college, it was a lateral move in terms of money, and I really needed to finance what was going on. And so there was a grant, and I applied for it to do a service learning project. 
but it just took hold of me. And that seems to be the power of the pedagogy is that once you start doing service learning projects with your class, it just speaks to you in a way that you've probably just never thought possible. And, and you get hooked and you just continue to do it. So although it may not have been from the most noblest causes at the beginning, it certainly uh, became a passion of mine professionally. And we're talking, really, the three of us today will be talking about something that's happening at the collegiate level, either community college or four-year colleges or other such institutions. There are other institutions, I understand, that come under this umbrella. Is there a special role for service learning in the community college, which both of you have been associated with, or a technical college, as in your case, Eva? Yes, something that Nick just said, you know, about how you, you get hooked. Once you start seeing how you can connect course content with community needs, there's nothing you can't connect. It causes us to, you know, think creatively, to think integratively, and it's really all about applied learning. And so community colleges have forever, two-year colleges, have been founded on a progressive educational philosophy, theoretically at least, are all about applied learning. You know, almost every program has a culminating course or two or three that involve students going off campus. Service learning is different from your internships or, you know, preceptorships in that the engine should really come from the community. In other words, the community need comes first, and then instructors and students apply course content to addressing those community needs. That's good, because I was going to ask what the difference is between service learning and community service. So what you just described could be just community service, but it's service learning because there's an educational component, I think. This may look different, I think, in two-year institutions versus four-year institutions. I'm particularly intrigued because I went to a four-year college, right, the Ivory Tower and I'm afraid that there has been a growing divide, at least in some people's minds, between those people in their ivory towers and the real on-the-ground needs of people in the community. Have you been able to be part of bridging that gap or that at least conceived gap? Actually, there's a lot of – the book talks about all of those things you just brought up, the town versus gown relationship and how – the university and or rural community college can identify closer with the community. It seems like the sense of place that rural areas have makes a natural connection with a rural community college. You can also get that in small liberal arts colleges located in rural areas too. However, some very large universities have a disconnect problem where sometimes it seems like they send out students to go work in areas that they're not used to. And, and Sophie in her chapter talked about student voice and how to cross those border crossers to move students from where they were at in their own cultural place to moving out into the community and going to places they weren't used to. So, yeah, the book addresses a lot of those different areas and talks about how you can connect students to the communities that they're not used to in ways that they never thought possible. And again, the book is The Landscape of Rural Service Learning and What It Teaches Us All. 
and we've got one of the three co-editors of it. We've got Nicholas Holton here today. Nick has joined us. Randy facilitated this connection, so thank you to Randy Stoker for doing that. And Charles Gansert, unfortunately, Chuck died before the publication of this was completed, but we're remembering him as we talk about the landscape of rural service learning. So there's this divide. Now you, on the other hand, Eva, you live in Madison. This is not exactly what we call the rural setting, and it's the second largest city in Wisconsin. The three of us happen to all be in the upper Midwest, but rural service learning is happening all across the country, and there are chapters about Colorado and everywhere else in the book as well. So do you experience things differently, Eva, because you are actually based in a big city? Well, and actually, I just moved to Milwaukee, so I'm I'm back home in Milwaukee, where I've lived for so many years. So urban areas, obviously, <laughs> served by, you know, universities and two-year colleges offer many opportunities, have many needs, I guess. I, I don't really like that word, but, you know, what I wrote about was how I cut my teeth 40 years ago on service learning in a rural community in upstate New York. And fell in love. You know, this is something Nick referred to. You you fall in love with it. You just don't understand how teaching, how learning can happen in any other way except by connecting students, what they are learning, with the community around it. And community colleges within urban cities can become just as insular as four-year colleges, but it's ironic because our students... And I know this is true in in rural community colleges as well. Our students are the community. And so when we don't connect them back to the community, we're really doing both them and the community a disservice. We're helping to cut ties that should instead be reinforced. Well, you refer, Eva, to your own experience at Cornell College. I'd like to hear a little synopsis. I mean, people should come and read the book, The Landscape of Rural Service Learning, in order to get the full detail. But you talked about your experience on the blue bus. What was this experience that you had that so grabbed you with service learning? This was in 1971, and I was going into my second year. I was in in the School of Agriculture. I was studying rural sociology. I went into my sophomore year feeling that I needed to do something more. I was brought up in a friends meeting, Quaker meeting in New York City. That experience just, it made me just not satisfied with just learning for myself. You know, the the ethical teachings that I was brought up with directed me towards others. Plus, this was the early 70s when I think, you know, the zeitgeist was was also there. So I found out that there were these courses being offered through the Human Affairs Program at Cornell University, and I wanted to know what that was all about, and the Blue Bus Project was the one that really called me. And the Blue Bus, this old GM bus painted blue, Stripped on the inside, except for a couple of seats, was a project that went into the hills of northern Appalachia to deliver friendly faces, sometimes social service information, and more importantly, advocacy and community organizing to those communities, those impoverished rural communities. 
So what did you actually do out there? I mean, you're in an academic institution, Cornell University, or back then, I guess it was Cornell College. You were studying something about sociology. So were you just going out and studying the community or were you doing something that they perceived as service to them? No, so it was Cornell University, and I was in the College of Agriculture, but what we did was we tried to find a way in. That was the first step. We had weekly colloquia where we would get together with the section leader, Sam Salkin, and we read. We read William Ryan's Blaming the Victim. We read Sykon's wonderful manual on community organizing, how people get power. Saikon's philosophy was, first, you just got to show up. You just got to be there. You make friends. You get invited into people's houses. And in that way, you put your finger on the pulse of the community, and you get to hear what they talk about among themselves. So initially, we would just play with kids, or we would show up for a work day. But little by little, we would get to the kitchen table where the real talk would happen. Sometimes they would need some kind of help with social services. They were 15, 20 miles away from downtown Ithaca where, you know, they would have to stand in the line to get some assistance. So we were trained in social service, using a social service manual. We were also connected through the Human Affairs Program with the Welfare Rights Organization. So we would take you know, what we learned from WRO out to the community. In that way, we would gain trust. We would help them figure out their welfare budgets so that they could make sure that they were getting the check that they were entitled to. And then beyond that, once we were sitting at the tables, once we discovered what the big community issues were, then the goal was to be organizers, so as to to bring people together who had similar issues, not on an individual but on a community level, to address those issues. All of that takes a lot of time. It takes not one semester. It takes several semesters. It's messy. It goes on. That's one of the things that I feel we have perhaps we're more challenged in that area than we were. And that's one of the things I try to, to speak about in the chapter that I wrote, how institutions, how schedules and institutional missions have to support our involvement in the community, or really we become, we're not useful, we become users. We become people study, I think you said, are you studying the community? And that would be the last thing that we would want to do. We're not there to study people. We are there as allies of the people who are there and to bring what privilege we have, what access to information we have to addressing the issues that they raise in order to support their voices. I hear you speaking from an ideological, spiritual framework, Eva. How widespread is your point of view amongst those doing service learning or rural service learning specifically? I really can't answer that, but you're right. I think it has to be founded in that kind of ideological perspective, and that's that's what we had going for us in the early 70s. Maybe Nick can answer that better than I can. I think I can address it a bit. If service learning, there's a million, a lot of definitions about service learning out there, But there seems to be that both of those words, service and learning, seem to have to happen. 
So you have to have meaningful community service and meet an, an address need or issue in the community. And at the same time, have it be tied to the curriculum or to a course, and it's really nothing more than a pedagogical or a way of studying some subject through community service. Now, once you say that, then the practitioners of that range in a broad spectrum of people that are almost all academically based and want to do some kind of community service activity to somebody that's very community-oriented and loosely ties it to the curriculum. So... When you say, are are most people like that, I don't think you can quantify it necessarily that way. However, I think, and I think what we need to do and what this book asks us to do is to take a look at, is there a closer tie between practitioners in rural areas and the people they work with, as opposed to people in urban areas and the people they work with? Is the sense of place and community stronger in a rural area and therefore our practitioners there are a little more one way on the spectrum versus the other. So the book brings up as many questions to answer as it answers. And I think there's a reason that we put Eva's chapter towards the beginning right after the introduction. And that is because, you know, that's the motivation that says, look what's been done in the past. Look at the great things that can be done in the future. You know, I went to Carroll University between 1972 and 76. In those years, I think that service learning had not been very widespread. It may have been at Cornell out in the east in New York, but in Wisconsin where I was going to school, I think the idea was still relatively new. The only thing that I think might become slightly close to service learning, and it wasn't truly service learning, was my final year. I took a one-month course called Minority Poor Education, and as part of that, we spent a couple weeks at an inner-city school in Milwaukee. So it wasn't rural, it was urban in this case. But I got my first taste, and I think that prepared me to a slight degree at least for my two years that I spent in the Peace Corps in West Africa. I began thinking about education in a way, because I wasn't an education major or anything. I think it does hook you, as you say. Now, again, the situations in which you, Eva, and you, Nick, have worked have been very different. MATC, Milwaukee Area Technical College, where you taught for a long time, Eva, and Madison College, those are both in urban centers. You, Nick, on the other hand, are far upstate in Michigan in a very rural area. I don't know what the biggest town is where you are. Does that mean that you have a different view of what it looks like on the ground, the two of you? Perhaps. Just a bit of information about our area I mean, the local high school in the district I live in is 500 square miles, just for the high school organization. Our our community college service area is the size of Connecticut. So, I mean, it's a large area. And that's one of the issues that we talk about in the book is that geography is such a big issue to overcome because if you have students that are driving 30, 40 miles to get to the community college and we're at least an hour and a half away from any university here, Trying to do service projects in one or two locations is tough. And so we talk about ways of expanding that so people can work in their own areas. That's just one thing we talk about. So I don't know. I think it is different for me because I just don't have a city around to work with. Also, I think the lack of interagency infrastructure that we don't have up here lends itself to issues that we have to work through. Each county has their own departments of health and things, but we can only put maybe at most one or two students in one of those 
where we need to spread that out over all four or five counties that we work with. So some of those issues that we deal with in a rural area are just going to be different than they're going to be in a, in a suburban area. You spoke before, Nick, of the town versus gown gap. I just have this sense. I mean, I was looking at the voting maps for the recent presidential election, and the rural areas were largely voting for Donald Trump, whereas Hillary Clinton, her votes came heavily from the urban centers. So you've got people who are coming from universities and working in rural areas. Even universities tend to be this kind of alternate mindset. Is it hard to make those connections? And you must have worked with a lot of students who had to forge connections that might have seemed a little foreign to them. And the book, again, addresses this in a couple different ways. And you're right, there are. If you read Sophie's chapter on the student voice, she came from the University of Maryland. She was my VISTA volunteer worker at the community college. And so she came in all fired up to work with students from her urban background in Annapolis area. And she shows up here and dealing with students who are, first of all, not 19, 20, 21, but are 26, 27, 28, and not used to a, a service mentality was really tough for her, number one. You read Blake Evans's chapter on his service project when he was in school to go out into, um, where was that, in Alabama, Linden, Alabama, where there was two schools in the town, the black public school and the private white school, and they shared a football field. But because the town was raising the rent on the football field, the public school, the majority African-American school, you know, moved to a different field. And, and the kind of race relations of that caused. But his job was to create a DVD to promote economic development and have people move into the area. So here's the city university kid, if you will, moving into an area with very clear racial divides. Yet his job was to promote economic development and bring people into the community. Those are the kinds of angst that are caused when you do this kind of border crossing and moving people from one community to another. And it's, I think it's a, as Kim Cummings at Kalamazoo College calls it, a good dilemma to put students into sometimes. And folks, today we are speaking with two of the participants in a book called The Landscape of Rural Service Learning and What It Teaches Us All. It was edited by Randy Stoker and Nicholas Holton. He's here with us today, and Chuck Ganser, who has passed since then. Also, Eva Hagenhofer is with us today. She's one of the contributors to the book, and they're both associated with the Rural Alliance for Service Learning, RAZL. You'll find a link to RAZL on the NorthernSpiritRadio.org website. This is Spirit in Action, which is a Northern Spirit Radio production on the web northernspiritradio.org with 11 and a half years of our programs, free listening and download. You'll find links to our guests, so you'll find a connection to Razzle as well as Campus Compact and several other organizations related to our guests today. Also, there's a place to post comments. Make our communication two-way by posting a comment when you visit. It really helps us know what direction we want to go. There's also a place to donate. Donations is 100% how this full-time work is supported. Even more important than supporting Northern Spirit Radio, though, is to support your local sources of media, your local community radio station especially. They provide a voice for the local community, which is just so vital. One voice does not fit all, and our communities need their voice, so support your local community radio station. Again, today with us we have Nicholas Holton and Eva Hagenhofer 
and both of them have participated in rural service learning. And as you were just talking, Nick, I think you you touched on my favorite. Actually, Eva's story was my favorite, and then the story that Blake Evans had in Linden, Alabama, was so wonderful. It has multiple layers. You talked about part of it. I mean, there's this DVD that Blake was going to be contributing to the town. And, of course, here, I'm going to go there. I'm going to photograph, get the stories. Here we have it. I produce the DVD. And they decide that that's not really what the community needs. Blake's participation was also connected with Living Democracy, which I take as a separate organization. What kind of organizations, umbrella-wise, provide the volunteers the motivation, the structure of rural service learning? Well, I think that local colleges and universities have several ways of connecting volunteers to their community. In mine, I was such a small college that a lot of that went through my office. However, many colleges have a Volunteer Centers of America office in them that connect volunteers, although that's different than service learning, to community placement things. Also, some towns have their own community agencies, and they work through the United Way and other organizations. Eva, you might even be able to help out here and give some that you've worked with also. Yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty idiosyncratic. You know, it's however they institutionalize service learning, which is a word used by the Carnegie classification. So there are awards given each year for community college community engagement activities. And the word that they use is institutionalization, that service learning is a part of the fabric of teaching and learning on the campus in the community that they are situated in. So, but how each institution institutionalizes and to what degree is really largely up to the leadership of the college, up to the board of directors, And this is a point that I tried to make in the article is how really central their leadership is in facilitating the service learning and making it what it can be. So it's very different. I mean, there is, as I said a little bit earlier, there's there's the Bonner service program that provides money. Nick alluded to AmeriCorps. So there are different types of funding, but it really has to come from the college, and ideally from the college calling upon the community to support the activity on the community's behalf, whether it's a rural or an urban community. So it really should be a very bottom-up approach, but supported with very strong leadership from on top. If you take a look in the last chapter of the book where we try to sum up some of the general themes that have been presented in the stories, there's like five different relationships between a college and the town or the community. And one can be, and they range anywhere from absolute indifference and ignoring what the community wants to being a best citizen in the world. And what Eva's saying is correct, is that There needs to be genuine reciprocity between the community and the college if they're going to be solving the issues and moving everybody forward. So when you say where do these relationships develop or how do they develop, having a dedicated administrative group at the college to make it systemic and institutionalized is important, but continuing to generate and nurture and develop those relationships with the community and give the community a real voice in what needs to be done is is there too. The community is not there to babysit our students. 
One of the things that we were moving towards before I retired from MATC in Milwaukee was the idea of creating a zone around the college, a five-mile radius around the college, and claiming it and saying, this is our community, not all of Milwaukee, not this huge urban area, but this immediate community, which took in organizations, neighborhoods, and saying, we're not just going to be an island here, we're going to connect uh, like a spider's web. We're going to try to create all of these connections, which serve so that by the college, I'll, I'll just use the word serve, serving the community, advocating for the community, engaging in the community, then the college becomes an asset to the community. And so when we need it, when the college needs it, when we need it for funding or for political purposes, then the community has our back. It can be a very reciprocal, very mutually supportive relationship, you know, when we choose not to ignore the fact (laughs) that we are, our institution is there in a place where people live. And I think that is as true for an urban area where we have to sort of describe it as we did, you know, five, a five-mile radius, as in a, a rural community, which is pretty much defines itself. I think that's pretty similar. The other part of that is how teachers go about, how instructors go about developing these community connections and addressing course learning objectives through the applied learning in a service learning project. And the word that we used at MATC was co-create. So a service learning project had to be co-created by the college and the community, the organization or the leadership within a particular institution or neighborhood to decide together what is the community need that leads, that guides And then the instructor, looking at course objectives, develops the activities that students become involved in. And then students inevitably also transform because they have their own energy to create. And generally, how long are the engagements of students with a particular program? Is this always just a semester? Are there multi-semester? I mean, you talked, Eva, earlier about the fact that this really takes more than a year to establish the connections and be able to be engaged with the community. Well, that we found was a problem for us. But yes, I mean, you meet the student. It's a 16-week semester. Uh, you meet students Maybe for the first two weeks, you're just sort of getting a grip on the course. And then hopefully things are set up to the point where students can go out. And then you have maybe a week at the end of, you know, finishing things up if we use a 16-week sort of schedule. So that only leaves 13 weeks optimally. And that's never optimum because you're just getting started. You're just beginning to develop the trust and the knowledge, we have to be humble in this work, you know, we have to be humble. That's how we get our credibility and, and again, the word trust. So I don't know, Nick, if you've had experience with service learning over the course of several semesters, but I think that's what we should be uh, reaching for. I think sometimes we have to be a little careful in trying to create this amazing project 
when we can do small projects that make a real difference that can be carried on over and over. And a couple examples would be, number one, our nursing students at our community college just did not get enough experience giving injections because quite often you don't give injections a lot in the hospital. It's just you'd shoot into a tube or something. So during flu season, in one class, students sign up to go to different health departments all across the huge geographical area we have, and they spend a whole day giving injections. And so by the end of those couple of days, they've given more shots than a lot of people would normally do. Plus, it relieves the staff that don't have time to do all those things. And we do that every single semester. So even though the student only has to do it for a couple of days, they get the practice they need in giving in injections. There's still a real live issue or a need that's being redressed in the community. Another example of that would be water quality through, in our area, we have the Osabo River, which is a blue ribbon trout stream, one of the best ones east of the Mississippi. A longitudinal study of that where you could have students going out. No student in our district lives more than about 30 miles from that river. So they could pick different areas to go do stream studies, and then all that data can be put in and tracked longitudinally to provide, you know, serious data to use for the Department of Natural Resources and other areas. So the project can live on, but students plug in as they go through the course that it's associated with. I think it depends on how that project is described Correct. by, like the, by also- the community partners, you know. What you just mentioned, I mean, that's all, it's wonderful, that's completely valid. Everyone learns and benefits from it. We should always be taking the lead from the community, though, was my point. True. I'd like to go back to also to what Eva said about the sense of neighborhood, because neighborhood is such a different thing, I believe, in a rural context than in an urban context. I love what she's done or they're doing in terms of defining their neighborhood to be a five-mile radius. In our area, when I moved to my house, I had somebody call me and say, welcome home, neighbor, and they lived a mile away. <laughs> so so the concept of neighborhood is different. And when you take a look at, for instance, a chapter on that Spencer Wood wrote about his student that decided to do a mo- – from Wyoming – or Colorado, to move out and do a mobile slaughtering unit for beef farmers in the San Juan Islands in Washington. Now, that's a pretty large stretch there, but the fact that this group of islands was a neighborhood was, I thought, very interesting. Or if you take a look at what's happening in in Alaska with the Inuit Elder Project, working with college students at University of Alaska Fairbanks, and their neighborhood is the Brooks Range. Or you take a look at, you know, some of these other things where neighborhood in a rural area or a frontier area is, you know, thousands of square miles. It's just, it's great, I think, that MATC is trying to recreate a lot of that in their own local area. So I I just think that's great. And I wanted to put a shout out to people in Lopez Island. And thank you, Nick, for bringing up that project in the San Juan Islands. There's regular listeners at KLOI there where Spencer Woods wrote the chapter about the work there. So, I mean, I really think that this rural service learning happens everywhere. And with these immense, immense neighborhoods, as you describe them, it's it's really powerful. I'm going to step back. When we're talking about the service learning type classes that are out there, you described, Eva, you know, a 16-week course. Is there never a, you know, maybe service learning 101 and then 205 and 345? Is there ever that kind of continuation or is it always a, a one semester and then you've splurged and spent all that you have on the outside world? 
Well, that was my experience at Cornell. I took, I don't know, six different courses that connected me to the Blue Bus. And so, you know, I was able over, you know, several semesters in a summer to be involved with the same community. I don't know. I know it in my experience teaching in Milwaukee, we did not have that do you ever have anything like that, Nick, where there's not just a one-semester installation, but continuing involvement of a student or students with service learning projects? I mean, you just get it started in one semester. Actually, I, I had one of my prize students. I had a couple of great stories, and one was, her name was Deb, and she came to me one day, and she just showed up in my office, and she goes, I'd like to do a project. And I said, yeah, well, what's that? Well, I'd like to do a project where I inventory all the substandard housing in one of the neighboring counties. And I said, well, how do you plan to do that? Well, I, I have the Habitat for Humanity International rules, and I'm going to go around, and I'm going to take pictures of all the substandard housing in the county. And they're going to fall into one of, th- I, I know, and they're going to fall into one of three categories, either the kind that just need some modifications, some that need a lot of work, and some that need to be bulldozed. And I said, now, wait a minute, you're going to drive around the county, every road in this county, and you're going to take pictures of people's houses. Yep. And I said, you know, people have guns up here and everything. And she, goes, I'm, she says, I am not afraid. And I said, what are you going to do with this information? And she said, I'm going to take it to the county commissioners, and I'm going to show them that we have a need for building codes in this county. And she says, and I'd like to get some credit for it. And so luckily we had that in our curriculum where we could do an independent study service learning research project. And so I signed her up for it, and she did that, and she completed this work. And at the time it was DB or CD-ROM technology. So she did that, and she presented it to the community commissioners. And I always always bring this up in my workshops. I'll say, what do you think they did with it? And, And the guests will say, I don't know. They did this. They did that. And I'd say, nope. They didn't do one thing. And you know why? Because some of those commissioners were the people renting those houses. <laughs> and and so, and they said, well, see, then she didn't make a difference. She didn't do anything. She, she, you know, it was a failure. And I said, no, quite frankly, it was not a failure because that was the very first class that 45-year-old woman ever took at a college. And she subsequently went on, finished her associate's degree at Kirtland, went on to a university, did her social work degree, and now is working in the community to make it better. So in my mind, was that particular project a failure? Well, it didn't do what she intended to, but was it something that led her into a field that she could make a difference for the rest of her career? Yep, it sure did. And those are the kinds of success stories that just, just warm my heart. I'd like to hear a success story from you, Eva, because one of the questions I had about this, I mean, again, this is spirit in action, and you, Eva Hagenhofer, you, I mean, you're working in kind of urban area, Madison, Milwaukee, and Wisconsin, and Nick, you're in upstate Michigan. Are the students transformed by this? You've both said that you got hooked by service learning, that it changed your lives and your direction. It made you want to do something. Does it happen very often with students? You just described one situation, Nick, where it seemed to be transformative. What about for you, Eva? That's a tough one. I mean, what I wrote about was, you know, it was a personal story about how I was transformed. My students, see, it was such a different setup. I would say that, you know, in the, and it wasn't usually 13 weeks, it was usually more like 12 weeks. I taught courses at the, at the beginning level in college, as well as students who are going to become urban teachers. So let me talk about both of those. 
in the basic reading and writing courses that I taught, I'm not sure that this was transformative, but most of my students had never volunteered for anything. They had never done anything in even their own community just to help out. And so I would say in their cases, they completed their service learning project with a a greater sense of agency. And that's not small. It needs to be sustained. It needs to be reinforced, though. You know, I wish I could say that I handed them off to someone else where they would have, they could deepen that experience. The students that were in the teacher education program, we had a cooperative urban teacher education program. It's now 25 years old. And the students in those courses were a cohort. So they went through a, a series of four courses more or less together, and started with just a tour of of urban schools, and then spent 15 hours doing some tutoring in another course. And then in the third course, they would have to spend 50 hours in a semester in a classroom attached to, you know, 25 to 35 kids. And I would say in that situation, it was transformative. It confirmed for them, the experience confirmed for them what they wanted to do, what sort of teachers they wanted to be. And I, last summer, actually interviewed about a dozen of them, and they all spoke about how important it was to do that 50 hours in a classroom prior to going on to a four-year college to finish up their licensure. And they are amazing. They are total allies of their students. In Milwaukee, most of those students would be African-American or Latino. And they know that they are different, that they are unlike the other teachers in their buildings who did not have that experience. So I would say in their case, it was truly transformative. One of the reasons I'm interested in this is because I do see a growing divide between urban and rural and between ivory tower and the layperson, or the town and gown, as you referred to it, Nick. I had a program a couple months ago. I called it Learning to Speak Both NPR and NASCAR. (laughs) Do you have students who you think learned to speak other than the NPR, which I associate with university? They learned how to speak NASCAR. Did you see that happen, or did it happen to you, Eva? In my own experience, it definitely happened. I learned how to monitor myself while I spoke. You know, I, I can be kind of a chameleon. So I took on certain regional expressions, you know, not imitatively, but because I was feeling it. And I think, I think what you're saying is really, this is really the nub of it. This book came out a week after the election. And that's when I wrote to Randy. And I said, Randy... What we have here is a tool for what comes next. We have to find a way to talk to professors, instructors, teachers in colleges, two-year or four-year, and encourage them to connect their students who have a certain degree of privilege, even if it's not much, You know, even if they have a full-time job and four kids and they're coming to school and they're 30 years old, they still have a certain privilege being in school and their prospects that lie ahead. 
But we have to find a way to connect students with the rural roar to create a dialogue. You know, I think that's the most important thing. I think that that's what service learning can do that lasts a lifetime. You asked about, did you learn to speak differently? I think you learn to listen differently, and you learn to dialogue. And that's what we need now. That's what this country needs, whether it's in the country, whether it's in the city, in colleges, but between colleges and communities. We can't allow our students to graduate and call themselves educated unless they understand the total of the society that they are a part of. And we can do that if we do it right. I'd like to add to that that we've been talking a lot about urban students going into a rural setting, but I tried to make sure that I tried to get rural students in urban settings as well. And we were able through the AmeriCorps program and some others to institute alternative spring breaks where we had our students and and we purposely chose places that were not close to us and not looking like us. And so we sent students to, you know, downtown Detroit and to Chicago and to Colorado so that they could see urban areas that were vastly different than what they lived in. We also made two trips to uh, one trip to Guatemala and we took another one the next year to Nicaragua and to work, you know, in a third world setting and to see what truly, truly poor people lived like and, and how we could help them. You know, in one case, we broke ground for a garden. In another case, we painted a school and just so that they could do that. And one of my students came back from that and she says, if those women could start a women's clinic with absolutely nothing, think what I can do as a nurse up here in my area. And so that's exactly what he was saying in terms of trying to get our students out of the great white north where we live. Right now it's snowy and connect with people in other demographic areas and in other places of the world is so important. And we can get NPR and NASCAR speaking intertranslations, people who know how to speak the two languages natively. Exactly. Again, we're talking about the book, The Landscape of Rural Service Learning and what it teaches us all. Uh, had three co-editors, Randy Stoker, Nicholas Holton, and Charles Gansert. And uh, we do have Nicholas Holton, one of the co-editors here with us, and one of the contributors, Eva Hagenhofer. There were two other examples that were in the book that grabbed my attention particularly. One is about the pep rally and talking about going out to the tribal school and gave them their first pep rally. Judith Pankochar, I think, is the author of that chapter. Could you describe what we learned from that chapter? Judith teaches, I think, still teaches at Northern Michigan University in the UP of Michigan up by Marquette. And her students, she wanted an, an intercultural dimension to her classroom so her students would spend time in a more urban setting if you can find them in the in the upper peninsula like in the marquette area but then also said seems how there's quite a tribal influence to um, have them go work in the tribal school as well and when those students went out to that tribal school it was like the very first day and the students the local school students connected to her students very well, you know, and they just said, hey, are you going to come back on our first pep rally coming back next week? And so there was the college students, university students were able to see that and were accepted into the tribal organization very quickly and were able to see that even though you came from a different place, you can blend in pretty quickly. 
And their first project up there was a pep rally that they put together, and the chapter goes on to describe other projects they've done. They're trying to grow up with something that not just has a one-day influence, but has longer-term contribution, a longer-term difference that one's making the school. And that's it's a trade-off, and particularly when you're dealing with a semester of training. The other chapter I wanted to mention something about was that written by Martin Reinhardt, talking about Anishinaabe, Native American studies, and he talked about the application of the medicine wheel. Do either you, Eva, or Nick feel ready to comment a little bit about the content of that chapter? I'll leave that to you, Nick. (laughs) Thanks. Um, (laughs) One of the things that I thought was interesting about the uh, medicine wheel template is that he talked about facing the east and then moving around that. And, And when I did that, it seemed to me that it was it just fit into a natural plan, do, study, act, total quality improvement type of model. Although it was nice because rather than something that was very sterile in today's business world, it was something that was culturally tied to the mores of the people that were there and gave a tie to the people and to the culture and a nod to their traditions that a lot of the stuff we do today don't. So I really thought that was interesting the way that Reinhardt, through that thought process, was able to tie to their culture and really make it seem more real to the people that were there. To me, that was the strength of that, and that's the application to our practice in the future. And that is, if you're dealing with a group of people that are different than you, and quite often we always are, what are the ways that we can tie in their traditions and their culture and their what resonates with them into a way that allows us to be more effective in helping them do what they want done. And I see this kind of cultural exchange happening in Native work that I've done in a couple different places. One was in Reinhardt's reading that, but another one, when I attended a couple of Inuit elder conferences up in the Fairbanks area, and I mentioned this earlier when we were talking about their sense of community, but there's an at-risk program for at-risk youth, which is more of a high school rather than a college program, but they also have college people in service learning that work with them, but they connect at-risk youth with Inuit elders in the area, and the elders are trained a bit in how to work with them, but there's a natural relationship there between the elders and the at-risk youth, not to just teach them about the old ways, if you will, but to just teach them about what it means to have integrity, what it means to be honest, why it's important to be a positive part of your community, why you don't want to do all the things that are marginalizing you from the community, and trying to bring those connections together in the tribal organizations that I've been working with are are really important. The same type of things are happening, for instance, in Central America with the Mayan organizations that I work with down there in Chichicasenega, where the Widows Project is trying to get youth involved in school and trying to get them to understand that, you know, what happened politically back in the 80s and the 90s is it's a done deal. We're moving forward now. And I see this in First Nation types of initiatives around the country. And I'm just, I think it's something that we could all learn from in terms of connecting with the best traditions of our past not necessarily the worst, and using that sense of integrity and community standards and community cultural mores to move us forward in a positive way. It sounds like, Nick, that you have a real love of building bridges, connecting cultures, connecting people, connecting personal experiences. That sounds like that's what part of this rural service learning work is about. And I think that that's really what the lines from Saikon's song 
what you do with what you've got really speak to. And if you'll allow me, I'll just read a few lines. This was more or less our anthem on the Blue Bus. So he says, it's not just what you're born with. It's what you choose to bear. It's not how much your share is, but it's how much you can share. And it's not the fights you've dreamed of, but those you really fought. It's not just what you're given. It's what you do with what you've got. And that's a song that I love. And Saikon, I've had him on my program a few different times, actually, folks. If you go to Spirit in Action, go through my Spirit in Action programs on NordenSpiritRadio.org, you'll find a lot of Saikon. He's really been a community organizer, influence. He's been working with Bristol Bay for a long time now up in Alaska, organizing all of the artists together to preserve Bristol Bay. So thank you for sharing that, Eva. And you two are part of moving us forward in a positive way by the book, The Landscape of Rural Service Learning and What It Teaches Us All. We've been speaking today with Nicholas Holton. We did not have co-editor Randy Stoker with us. He set this up, though. Charles Gansert has already passed from this world. But fortunately, contributor Eva Hagenhofer was able to join us for today's call. Thank you both for being part of this tremendously big umbrella, this rural service learning, making a difference for each of us, connecting our rural communities with our urban communities, our students with really learning to hear differently. I I liked when you said that, Eva. It, It seems so important that both of you have been doing this work for so many years. You've made such difference in lives, and you're passing it on by sharing the book with us. Thank you for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Oh, well, thank you so much for helping us talk about this service learning, which is dear to our hearts. And Nicholas, again, thanks for taking all this time this morning. Thank you, Mark. It's been great having a chance to share some of the great work that we've done, but I really just applaud you for the work that you do in in the Spirit in Action program. That was Nicholas Holton and Eva Hagenhofer, today's Spirit in Action guests. A big thank you to Randy Stoker, co-editor of the Landscape of Rural Service Learning, for facilitating our connection, and also to Andrew Jansen for production assistance today. We'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song.